Hey now, other people call me Paul. Hey, Rebecca. Hi there. <laughs> people who call me Rebecca are mad at me usually, so I I don't really re respond to it that much. But anyway, please cut this out. It's, it's too early in the morning for me to be mad already. Yeah. In our last episode, we talked about all the things that we liked about podcasting. I want to go dark today. Hmm. You know you know what I like the least about podcasting, Becky? Mm, editing? Uh-uh. Mm. It you want you got another guess? Well, mm. No. It is the fact that I can't use memes to express my feelings and my deep <laughs> inner thoughts. I feel I feel handcuffed by that. That is a big part of your vocabulary. What do you like the least about it? Um, what do I like the least about podcasting? Well, our listeners, listener, <laughs> may, may know, may know. You like our listeners the least? Our listeners may know that this is our first time doing a podcast. Or even if they're not sure that it is our first time, they might be able to guess that. And so I think anytime I do something for the first time, I always have a lot of doubt about um you know i feel nervous about it i feel you know because you want it to go well but there's a lot that we don't even know that we don't know about podcasting so mm. i think that's what i i don't like not knowing what i don't know about it hmm. well there's also the other twenty thousand billion people that are doing it that probably have the same wonders sometimes i listen to our episodes and that's i'm like yeah true. that's good sometimes i listen to them i'm like uh. <laughs> that's true we're probably better than Several of those 20,000 yeah, people. At, le at least. At least several. Oh, I should really work on communicating without memes. and Maybe next time we can do a meme cast. <laughs> Comic strip. <laughs> memes are never funny when you have to describe them to somebody why they're funny, but we could do the whole thing. We're just trying to describe. <laughs> All right. I knew you would insist on co-hosting today's episode. Or sidekicking at least because it's sure. with one of our most our most favoritest people yes so let's go say hi to her all right hi my name is Corey feta hartley and i feel that three-dimensional learning challenges me to be a better teacher hey Corey. I want you to know that we've been anticipating your arrival here on the 3DL studio <laughs> since we started doing this because <laughs> you know, we've had some we've had some fun guests and some really fun guests, but we haven't had any Corys in these parts yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a tall order to, uh, to live up to. We'll we'll choose to ignore the fact that you can only fit us into your schedule at 4:30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. <laughs> That's just because I'm a um, procrastinator. <laughs> no, it's because you're a pretty important person. You got that juice, as they say. Actually, I don't know if they say that anymore. <laughs> um, pretty sure not. So, <laughs> <laughs> we we can't. We gotta keep that in mind. We can't go entirely off the rails like we're just hanging out. We have a purpose here. There's a microphone on. All mm -hmm. right. There are rules, Corey. What is your official role at Michigan State University? 
Um, I have a title called Assistant Dean for Curriculum Coordination in the College of Natural Science. It is a position that didn't exist before I had it, but the way I see my role is to help to facilitate undergraduate education efforts in the College of Natural Science. And, and so I work with a, a lot of faculty who are doing work in the trenches, and I work to try to um, give them a platform and an opportunity to share what they know and their expertise with others and an overall effort really just to improve undergraduate STEM education. It sounds like a fun job. It has its moments. <laughs> it also has its challenges. Um, I'm very thankful that I have the position I do. I, I think that it's it does show, you know, when they first hired me in this role, it, it showed that the College of Natural Science was committed to undergraduate education and, and put some resources into it by, by hiring somebody who's sole job was focused on trying to coordinate these efforts. What do you think helps make for a productive partnership between, you know, someone like yourself in an administrative role and someone uh, who is doing the research in the, you know, quote, trenches, like you said? I think the um, key thing is trust and um, developing relationships based on that trust. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen immediately. That took some time. So yeah. I was given this title and there was this rollout. And I think there was a lot of um, pushback and um, sort of furrowed brows. What is this person going to do? Are they going to come in and tell me how to teach my course? Mm -hmm. And I think that is the last thing we want to do. What we need to do is, is build these relationships based on trust and, and I see my role as a support role, not as this is how you're going to do things. I don't have the knowledge or experience to tell people how to do things. I want to um, give them the, the platform that they need to advance their efforts. How'd you get ensnared in this sticky web of 3DL people? Um, several years back now, there were multiple overlapping efforts that were getting started at MSU. And um, the thing that I got hired as part of, and as did, as, as did Becky, was an effort called the Biology Initiative, which was an internally funded effort to improve biology education, life sciences education in the College of Natural Science. At about the same time, there was an overall effort that was being led by Melanie Cooper. And, and the goals of what she was proposing to do and the biology initiative, while not exactly the same, were certainly overlapping. Mm -hmm. and so I was part of those early meetings where they were um, bringing in different stakeholders to talk about what we would do as an institution. And uh, from that point on, I just stayed with the group. I tried to leave a couple times, but... <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't let you, I think. <laughs> Sticky web, yeah. You're at meetings. I thought meetings were went good ideas went to die. <laughs> well, and I think that's the thing that has really um I found pretty remarkable about this whole process. That was a lot of years ago. And we're still meeting. 
So I think um, meetings are where good ideas go to die, but somehow we've been able to keep meeting and haven't let all of the ideas uh, die just yet. The good ones go to die, the bad ones get talked about for 90 minutes. I don't know why I'm being like this. Um, I don't know if you can tell this from her description so far, but if you know Corey, you know that clearly she wears many hats. And from my perspective as a little 3DL rat or monkey or whatever (laughs) creepy little animal you you are you know you're mostly to me (laughs) i hope i hope you change that paul (laughs) you're not a rat i'll I'll put a different and i'll put i'll think of a creepier animal to put over (laughs) like a bat oh okay i like that anyways she's Corey is the um she's the fellowship boss and master and overlord and we'll talk well maybe Let's talk about this now. Maybe we should start with what are we do we does this thing have a name these days? This thing we we call a fellowship? Does it have well, like an official name? I think it it's called um the um 3DL STEM Fellowship. No, STEM okay. 3DL STEM <laughs> Teaching and Learning Fellowship. It used to be called the um uh STEM Gateway Teaching and Learning Fellowship. But when we expanded it to include more than uh, just instructors in the gateway courses, we dropped the gateway. Hmm. And you're heading this direction anyways, but it, it's evolved and adapted over the last, say, I don't know, I think it's like seven-ish years. But um, if you go back to the beginning, there you know, there was money put into it, and so you must have had an explicit purpose. So at, the, at its inception, or Becky... Every episode, Becky tries to talk about childbirth. So at, at his birth, <laughs> what was the um, what was like the stated purpose of the fellowship? So um, it 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 was part of the AAU initiative, um, the STEM initiative, and it was really um, MSU's contribution to that overall effort. So we were requesting funds through this AAU STEM initiative. And we said um, in the proposal, we're going to have this fellowship as an indicator of um, the institution's commitment to this work. And um, I actually went back and and looked through some old documents as I was preparing for this podcast. And um, really, it was seen as part of this overall effort to change institutional culture around teaching and learning. Um, and so really the fellowship was meant to help facilitate that reform and contribute to this overall uh, culture change. And, and so um, that was um, sort of the institutional piece. And then when we in, incorporated the 3DL piece, the three-dimensional learning was um, added or, or included as a framework that would allow us to engage faculty from across different disciplines with a common language a common approach to teaching and learning. I'm, yeah. I'm just applauding because I think Corey's the first person on our show to do to do homework and come in with. Uh... Myself included, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's because I, I I'm not fast on my feet, so I have to prepare. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I think Becky was going to ask something. I'm not sure. No, I was also going to comment on the fact that um, that Corey is the first person who's prepared for the podcast. <laughs> so it's very it's clearly true. But yeah, the fellowship was um, I think one of the one of the things that helped make it successful was that it was kind of 
modeled after the Lilly Fellowship. So there was sort of a precedent, at least at MSU at that time, for the early cohorts that this was something that was desirable to do. And it was it was kind of a mark of prestige, you know, it marked your sort of earnestness and thinking about teaching. And so it was a good, um, it was a good, you know, kind of sister program, much smaller, of course, and much, but a good sister program to the Lilly Fellowship. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly how it was originally pitched um, um, back in those early days that it would be uh, similar to the Lilly Fellowship and, um, but focus on STEM education. The other thing, the thing that I found most useful about my Lilly um, year was um, becoming, expanding my community beyond my discipline. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was relatively young at MSU at the time. It was only my second year, but all of my interactions had been within my own discipline and, and my own unit. And so I met people who were um, in completely different fields and in um, different colleges uh, across MSU. We don't exactly recreate that in the STEM fellowship, but we do have it um, set up as an interdisciplinary fellowship across the STEM disciplines. So while most of them are from a limited um, number of colleges, they are from different disciplines with physics and chemistry and biology and um, math and statistics. And I think that has been a real strength of the program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny when you talk to the fellows, that's often one of the things that they bring up um, is that, you know, that community, that chance to talk to people they wouldn't normally talk to across disciplines. And then you ask them about, then we talk about more deeply about 3DL and then cross-cutting concepts come up, which is not strictly about across discipline, but maybe partly. And everybody's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think what resonates more are the science practices because mm-hmm. the science practices um, really don't have disciplinary boundaries. And, and, and there's really not that much difference in the way someone thinks about these science practices um, depending on whether they're a physicist or a biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this fellowship, this this going back to not the Lilly Fellowship, but the STEM, not the Gateway Fellowship anymore, the, mm-hmm. the Teaching and Learning Fellowship. Um, it's maybe unusual uh, because it's it's two years long. Um, has and that's been a constant since the start. Has it, has the experience of the fellows? Do you think changed over those years, though? Yes, um, and I think it will continue to change. Um, we are always trying to um, evaluate, as you well um, both know, um, because you've tried to to contribute to those efforts meaningfully, um, and and then make revisions based on those evaluations. So we created a four-day program to help really immerse the fellows in what three-dimensional learning is all about. This used to occur over an entire semester with once-a-month meetings. I think this was a real improvement, and, and we did this because we felt like it was just taking too long to get the fellows immersed in what this fellowship really is, and um, we, wasted, we thought we were wasting a lot of time. So I think that's one way that the we learn from our experiences and improve how the fellowship is conducted. Yeah, it, it takes time and people to 
you know, hold them down long enough to pour enough of the Kool-Aid down, down the throat. <laughs> the other piece of it, I think, is people are pulled in so many different directions. Hmm. And so if you go a month in between thinking about these things, it's mm -hmm. going to be much harder to develop a, a meaningful understanding. And, mm -hmm. you know, most of the fellows are teaching large enrollment courses. Um, they're doing research. They're doing service. And this is just one more thing in that really long list of things they have to do. And so if we can get that, you know, get a time where they can, you know, really dedicate those four days and really that's all they're thinking about at that time for the most part, I think that's a really helpful use of their time, uh, a more efficient and effective use of their time. Can we bring them into the woods next time? I think that would be great. I actually do think that um, a retreat would be fantastic. I mean, we've traveled, the three of us, uh, mm -hmm. and when you travel with people, you really do develop a sense of community and um, it's different. Yeah. So I think that's a good idea. I don't know about out in the woods. Uh, KBS um, rooms is about as far out into the woods as I want to go. <laughs> no glamping for this crowd. <laughs> okay, so let's um, let's get a little bit more out there. Let's think about the people a little bit that are coming in and doing this. If you could, if it was possible to go on Amazon and search like, good fellows <laughs> what, what, are, what are some of the features you look for of the people who seem to really take it and run so i think um an important a really important feature is that a fellow needs to be able to um, and willing to meaningfully reflect and critique their own teaching i think if you don't come into the fellowship with the idea that's hard it is. Nobody likes to do that. It is. And, <laughs> and um, I think the most successful fellows have done that, even though it's hard. And some of them, it has taken a while and it's been a push and a pull. Um, but eventually they really do reflect in a meaningful way on what they've been doing. I think too often um, people who participate in fellowships, not just this fellowship, but others, are just trying to sort of um, reinforce the idea that they're a good teacher, or they're trying to do this to check off a box to add to their CV. If you're not going to question your practice, you, you, the, the benefits from the fellowship are minimized. Hmm. And it is hard. And and. I continue to struggle with my own teaching, for example, because of 3D, um, because I'm always trying to think about um, how can I engage students meaningfully in three-dimensional learning. It's easier for me to develop a lecture where I don't have to engage them in that. Um, <laughs> it really is. And, and, uh, but, you know, it's forced me personally to continue to question everything I do as a teacher. And so I think if you don't come into this fellowship, being willing to do that, being willing to change in, in a fundamental way, then you're not going to get much out of it. And your teaching practice is unlikely to change. There's a, um, a quote from a book called Pedagogy of Freedom. Did you do Bye. homework, Becky? 
Um, no, this was a while. This was, I love that you said this was about, I don't do homework anymore. I've given it up and you just get what you get. But there's, I love that you said that Corey, because, um, I always think of you as a very reflective learner and you mentioned, you know, how, how just then. And I, um, I feel like, you know, you and your characterization of the fellows who are willing to, are willing to question, question themselves is really, um, characterized by this quote from this Pedagogy of Freedom book, which is by Paulo Freer. And it says, it, it is our awareness of being unfinished that makes us educable. And I just think that's such a quality to emulate. Um, and so I, I love that you, that you said that, because I, I think of you as such a reflective, um, a, a reflective instructor. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of brutal sometimes to be a reflective instructor, you know, mm -hmm. every day I um, log off of my class right now and I question everything I just did. And, mm -hmm. um, but I do think it can, it can make us better um, teachers if we are real willing to put ourselves out there and, and really um, critique ourselves and, and, mm -hmm. and reflect on it in a meaningful way. I mean, I think that's what makes Corey such a good facilitator of the fellowship in general. She puts it out there. She makes it visible. She models to these people like what it looks like to critique yourself. And mm -hmm. That's something she's really good at. Well, thank you. I'm talking about you in third person like you're not right there. <laughs> I'm just going to crawl under my desk right now. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of what we think about as being related to culture in this academic world is often, not always, but often um, specifically departmental culture. Um, so what if you could go on Amazon and buy a whole department? What would you be looking for there? So um, for the department, I would really be looking for a chair who is committed to undergraduate education, as committed to undergraduate education as they are research in their department. I think that when new tenure stream faculty are hired, their contribution to the teaching mission should be as important as thinking about what their research field is and how their research is going to contribute to the department. I would want the department to have a chair and faculty who recognize that education research should inform teaching practices and that we should abandon notions that that's how I learned, so that's how I'm going to teach. I think mm -hmm. that's key. Way too often our departmental cultures are based on this is how I succeeded, so this is how mm -hmm. I'm going to teach. That that doesn't work for the vast majority of our students. You know, mm -hmm. very few of them are going to go on to be faculty members. So I think we really have to abandon that notion of that's how I learned. And I think that uh, we have to have chairs and faculty who will meaningfully evaluate teaching and not reduce this effort to a score based on student evaluations that we know are inherently flawed and biased. So th those are some of the keys, I think, to um, really changing the culture in um, science and mathematics departments. How about... The institution as a whole, you've, you've talked about how the provost office and, you know, they've, some of the bill has been picked up on parts of the fellowship that's made it easier to sustain. But what else can be done kind of from the, the cockpit of the plane while the rest of us are trying not to fall down in the bathroom in the back? Well, I... <laughs> 
I hate to reduce everything to money, but money is a really important part here. We have to invest in undergraduate education. And part of that means investing uh, funds to add undergraduate learning assistance to these courses, um, adding graduate TAs to courses. If we want to have authentic um, assessments, if we want to have uh, assessments that really do engage students in 3D learning, um, a lot of those have to be written. Uh, the best 3D L assessments are written once. And, and graded, and you have to have somebody to grade them, and mm -hmm. and so uh, we need to to really add resources to take full advantage of three D teaching and learning. Um, I also think that um, along this line, we need to reduce class size. We need to create environments where students can work together in groups to um, delve into three-dimensional learning. We know teaching is a social construct, and it's hard to do that when you have 360 people stuffed into a classroom. Now, we're not doing that right now, obviously, but, but that has been the status quo. And the 360, for example, for our chemistry courses, is down you know, 50 students because they had to bring the lecture hall up to code. So I, I really think we have to um, invest in creating learning environments that facilitate 3DL learning. And that comes to um, instructor-student ratio and, and really the size of the classrooms. Okay, a little bit different direction. In these last, in these last two cohorts of the fellowship, it's become a multi-institution thing. And we've talked to people on this podcast from Florida International University and Kansas State. Debbie will be on next week to represent Grand Valley. What's it been like to expand the program beyond Michigan State? I think it's been a challenge to expand the program. Um, I think the, the um, fellowship leaders at those institutions have contributed um, um, really meaningfully to the overall fellowship. And it's great to have a team of people working on developing the activities and um, the objectives and the materials for the fellowship. That part's been great. I think, you know, facilitating um, a fellowship that goes across institutions and meets virtually, um, we've had some hiccups along the way. The biggest one to me is creating a sense of community. You know, at MSU, that's the biggest institution. There's the most people. We dominate the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think what ended up happening early on is that there would be side conversations going on at the other institutions, which um, it was hard, you know, for other institutions to hear what was happening at Michigan State. And, and so that was a natural um consequence of uh, struggling with the virtual environment. Sure. So I think we have to um, consider that as we go forward, what are the benefits of bringing people from multiple institutions together? And, and some of the benefits I see are that um, we recognize that these challenges are universal and, and so that's where we have the advantages or the, or the, the positive aspects of working across um, these institutions. Hmm. 
another benefit may have been that because we were used to meeting virtually when we had to switch over um, a year ago now, um, we might have had some better clue how that was going to go. Is there anything that we're likely to keep from this experience as we go forward to whatever? I don't, there's so many words I don't want to use, whatever silver linings and whatever normal means, all that. Well, yeah, I think um, the sense of community piece got a lot better when we moved online. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having the different institutions be um, in rooms, like at MSU, all the fellows were in one room. And then we tried to project to the other institutions. Everybody was on their computer screen. So everybody had their computer, joined the fellowship meeting. You could see all the faces. You can see the names because the Zoom allows you to do that. And, and I honestly think that piece really did contribute to a sense of community. And I think we should um, continue with that going forward. Mm. Um, I felt that everybody was more seen and more heard when we moved to that uh, uh, approach by necessity. Mm-hmm. I also think there's something to be said for getting in a room and sharing food with mm-hmm. colleagues, you know? So I think we need to take advantage of the best of um, both of those opportunities uh, as we think about future iterations of the fellowship. Yeah. I think Zoom's working on that, like the food dispenser <laughs> computer. I'm not sure. Perfect. Okay, I'm going to try to get Corey to do the work of our entire Friday afternoon happy hour work group where we're, we've been trying to think about, you know, moving forward with the stuff. Is this your, so here's a, is this your fun question? Have, is there, are you, have you gotten I'm, to the I'm fun not, questions I'm not yet? Talking, not, Becky, I'm not. <laughs> Just Corey, I'm wondering. Sorry. I'm sorry you have to see this. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you a real question? Like, yeah, what are we here we've for? Asked several. <laughs> okay, here it is. How do we know if the fellowship is working? This is a very difficult question to answer. And um, I think you, Paul, and and Becky previously, and um, uh, the other Paul and Kinsey have been working hard to understand that. The ultimate goal is to create courses where students have the opportunity to engage in exploring core ideas by applying science practices and cross-cutting concepts. That's our goal. Um, So really measuring the extent to which our courses include three-dimensional learning is one way to think about how to measure the um, efficacy of the fellowship. And we're doing Mm -hmm. that using tools like the 3D learning assessment protocol and the 3D learning observation protocol. But the challenge is um, to what extent we can attribute the fellowship to any successes that we have in that capacity. The fellowship is but one of all the six, all the successes are because of the fellowship. (laughs) Well, but it really is just one thing out of many that's going on at MSU to try to transform these gateway courses. Mm-hmm. On some level, we shouldn't care, right? If students are getting a consistent 3DL experience up and down and sideways and all that, um, 
Absolutely. But I, I mean, I, I get, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one thing we can say is that we know the fellowship isn't hurting in, in that mm-hmm. regard. So we know we're not um, detracting from this overall goal. Um, and, and so I think you're right. If, if what we're doing is continuing to work, um, we should keep doing it. We should also evaluate um, um, and, and get that, that, especially that qualitative data from the fellows so that we can uh, understand how to in, uh, improve the experience and, and maybe advance these efforts even more. Okay, Becky, should we ask her the magic wand version or the vaccine version, or do you have new Oh, I think the vaccine for version for sure. She's a Given virologist. Corey's virology history, yeah. Okay, you ask her. No, you do it. You have the notes. <laughs> Not written. Uh, okay. There, we, I don't know if you've heard this, but they've uh, come up with a, a 3DL vaccine, and <laughs> you can just give somebody a shot and... You know, no fellowship required. Um, <laughs> so we got plenty of it, but there are distribution bottlenecks. So we have to decide who's going to get it <laughs> first. How do we start? How do we decide? Yeah, how do we decide the uh, order of who's going to get this shot? Huh. Who's who's phase one A? Right. Huh. My very first gut reaction is administrators. So give it to the chairs, give it to the dean, give it to the associate deans. Um, if you want to think about institutional culture, give it to central administration. If we want to see fundamental change around 3DL, that is a key piece going forward. If I had to then pick one B, then I'm going to go with um, faculty and academic staff who are involved in teaching the Gateway courses. This has the biggest impact on our students. We know that the first two years of undergraduate education are the most important as they relate to persistence and STEM. And, and so if we can get everyone to buy into this and, and to um, offer courses that are infused with 3DL, we know that we will move the needle on persistence in STEM education. It's really interesting. We get all kinds of different answers for that first phase question, who the first, who phase 1A is. Hmm. Um, I know Corey has to go soon, but I have um, a couple of just quick would you rather question. Do you know what would, re- would you rather, how you play, Corey? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> we had people who <laughs> I, I had to ask. Okay. Would you would you rather be locked in a room that's constantly dark for a week or a room that's constantly bright for a week? Um hmm. I'm gonna go with uh constantly dark. I'll take a nice long nap. Okay. And then the most important one, would you rather Eat a ketchup sandwich or a mayonnaise sandwich, but oh, it has to be sick. like a lot, a lot of ketchup or a lot of mayonnaise. Oh, definitely like ketchup. All right. Yes. You're saying people have <laughs> surprised me. Well, I, I'm not convinced uh, that's true, but you know. <laughs> well, we got we got to piece our bits of evidence together. <laughs> okay. Well, Corey, we we really do appreciate you and your generosity with your time, even though it was 
5 a.m. on a Saturday and <laughs> all the hard work that you do both behind the scenes and now in front of the everybody's in front of a camera now. But without it, we would not have anywhere near the rich uh, landscape of people and experiences to draw on and build on. Well, thank you. So, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this and, and for um, pulling this podcast uh, series together. I, I hope that people uh, benefit from hearing what we have to say and um, uh, look forward to listening to the other ones, too. Yeah, we have fun, I think. Well, I have fun, whatever whatever she fun. says, she says. I have a modicum of fun. Uh, <laughs> she, she has conditional fun, she says. 